Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, President Biden visits North Carolina with a message about vaccinations, the contest for election security or voter protection, and Nicole Hannah-Jones' decision about coming to UNC. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. This week, President Joe Biden was in North Carolina with a special message regarding COVID vaccinations. You are still at risk of getting seriously ill or dying if you, in fact, have not been vaccinated. That's just a fact. And this new dangerous variant continues to emerge. It's now the most common variant in America and here. And unvaccinated people are incredibly vulnerable. This is a serious concern with what experts call the Delta variant. The president's visit comes as North Carolina is not keeping pace with the rest of the country in terms of the rate of vaccinated adults. Biden's goal to see 70% of American adults vaccinated by the 4th of July is falling short with about 65% of the country vaccinated. And here in North Carolina, only 55%. Our Department of Health and Human Services has stated we still want to reach our goal of two-thirds of North Carolinians, 18 and older, with at least one vaccine dose. That's when we believe we will have enough protection across our communities to be able to live more safely with this virus. Let's talk about the president's visit and the vaccination rate here. I'd like to welcome from NCCU, Brett Chambers, Lamicia Whittington of Advanced Carolina, and political analyst Steve Rao. The impact of President Biden's visit, let me just start off with you, L.A. What do you think the real impact of that visit has been or will be? Um, I, well, I think it remains to be seen. Uh, North Carolina is comprised of mostly rural communities. And so President Biden made his stop in, of course, our state's capital. And that's great. Uh, but a lot of attention is focused on always Raleigh, uh, Durham, Charlotte, Greensboro, major urban metropolitan areas, but the rural communities are always left to bear, uh, not only with uh, visibility, but also accessibility to vaccination uh, 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 sites. So we've already seen a discrepancy for the past since January, where there aren't as many sites in rural communities and food desert areas, medical desert areas, uh, transportation that can't actually transport people to the vaccine sites. Okay, that's where the real impediment is. And so to stop here in the, the triangle, is to still place focus on urban areas, so we'll see. And Steve, what do you take from his visit, his decision to come to Wake County and then to come to the uh, the Greene County community area? Well, I think, first of all, I, I, I think it was a good thing that our commander in chief came to uh, drive up vaccination rates. We're, we're not doing so great in North Carolina. We're 38th in the nation. Only 55% have received one dose, 52% fully vaccinated. And Wake County, we've done pretty well, Deb. I mean, you know, in terms of just uh, how well we're vaccinated and seeing, uh, you know, deaths really go down and cases go down. But if this part of Wake County, we're seeing uh, the numbers not looking so good in terms of vaccination. So I think it's good that he went to this part of Wake County. And I think, as, as it's been said, it's very important for us to also look at how do we bring people out in the rural areas Obviously, the cash incentives and lotteries don't seem to be working as much as we thought. We hope that changes. And uh, it's important for the president to also reopen the economy. So the danger is if the Delta variant continues 
and people that aren't vaccinated can get that Delta variant, which is what Dr. Fauci is saying, then it could actually spiral us back in the fall where we would have to maybe lock down, close things up. And so I think there's a balance between reopening the economy, continuing to get businesses back, but it's not going to happen as fast as we want if we don't get people vaccinated. So I think it's great the president came. It's yet to be seen how successful it will be. Yeah, and Brad, I just want to get your thoughts on this too, because some people may feel like, you know, Biden, what what was your presence actually going to do in terms of an impact? Why would he choose to come all the way here? Well, North Carolina is a very important state, and there's not just a um, national election, but there's some local implications too. So, and then from a health standpoint, public health standpoint, he wants to send a message that I care. So he comes to the state that only 12, only 11 other states have worse vaccination rates than we do. So we're not at the bottom, but we're not at the top. And then he comes to the, the to the to the state capitol so he can get the state legislators' attention too. So it's like it's, it's a good it's a good move politically. But um, LA actually made a very what I think is an even better point is that there could have been some attention given to some of those other counties where he may not even be as strong and uh, politically, but also from a public health standpoint, he would have probably had a bigger impact too. It's definitely a political message there, I think. And uh, I want to take a look at some numbers and policy measures related to COVID spread. We know that since March 2020, nearly 1,012,000 people in North Carolina have tested positive for the coronavirus and almost 14,000 have died. Comparing a map of the state that shows the number of COVID cases and deaths by county, Uh, to a map that shows vaccination rates. It's clear many of those counties with highest COVID cases and deaths are also those with low vaccination rates. And we also know that Governor Cooper has extended the emergency order through the end of July, through July 30th. At the same time, around mid-May, the governor issued an executive order lifting all mandatory capacity and gathering limits, social distancing requirements, and mask mandates. And most recently, the legislature voted to give local school boards the decision-making power about masks as kids return to schools. And what I want to ask you is, are there mixed messages coming from the state and Governor Cooper? What do you think, Steve? Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about that myself. I mean, it is. I mean, when you start releasing, uh, you know, reducing these mandates, uh, you know, not requiring masks, of course, if you're vaccinated, uh, reducing the capacity, uh, you know, the limits of events, there's a sense of optimism. Even for me, I feel like great. It's back to summer, go out. But you don't realize that there are still people out there that aren't vaccinated. And I think that's the problem is the messaging has to be concise and consistent. So I just hope that we're not opening up too fast and then come the fall, there could be another surge. Well, we've already got this opening in L.A. What are your thoughts about this mixed messaging? Um, is that mixed messaging that we're hearing? It absolutely is. Uh, and we've been dealing with mixed messaging since last year. Uh, in our state, there were no OSHA protections uh, for uh, workers, essential workers in COVID-19. So already last year, a lot of essential workers, a lot of frontline franchise corporation workers were being exposed to COVID and facilities were not required to actually do social distancing. Now, why do I say that, right? This year, we're seeing the impact of that, the impact of the health disparities, the impact of the vaccination rate in these rural and tier one through three counties. And then at the same time, our communities did receive relief and now we're being told we can go back outside. So we can't discount the cumulative impact of mixed messaging for a straight year in addition to 
to kind of the comfort level where we've taken down our guard, right? April 21st is when Governor Cooper gave the announcement. It's been two months of a consistent message that says, okay, June 1st, we're clear, we're free, we're good to go. And then here's President Biden that's telling us, hold up, not so fast. Here comes a variant. We need you vaccinated. It's confusing. And then we're seeing these different tactics to encourage people to get their vaccinations, cash, gas, a million dollar lottery. Um, and it doesn't seem to be working. Brett, why do you think not? People are confused. And a lot of people, the people who would have probably worked on already got vaccinated. Probably, You know, it's like there's 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 a group of people who are just like in anything else. They're early adopters. People that will rush out as soon as something available. They're going to go get whatever that is because they know it's like they believe that that's what's going to help them. Then they're the, 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 the laggers or the doubters. They're going to sit back and, oh, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't believe it. Um, there's still people that don't believe that there was anything called COVID at all. Um, there are people that don't trust. Uh, they, didn't, they don't trust. It doesn't matter who the president is. They're not going to trust them. Everybody's getting these mixed messages. So I think that we, we have, it has to be a targeted approach to it now because the masses, that, that big group, they've already done their vaccination, vaccination. Now we're trying to get to these small pockets of people that have various reasons why they're not, whether it's they don't trust vaccination, whether they're claiming, oh, I'm not going to be like the Tuskegee Airmen, or I mean, not Tuskegee, but the Tuskegee Experiment. Um, I'm not going to uh, play into Biden's or the government's hands. And so all these different places have different reasons. And each location is going to have to find out what those people's reasons are and overcome those with a, with a different narrative. Just one more. I'm going to you know, get to you again, L.A., because what do you suppose anyone can do at this point to try to get to that number? And is that number that Biden was aiming for just too ambitious? Uh, well, in North Carolina, we have to think about a Southern strategy and we have to think about, you know, as the professor mentioned, we have to really talk about, you know, what is the historical legacy of uh, Tuskegee and other experiments that have created an impact. So we have to strategize and think critically, okay, how does that impact today? Um, when we talk about vaccine hesitancy, that's the messaging, that's the actual approach that we have to take in community because technically speaking, the COVID-19 vaccines were emergency approved by FDA, but they're actually not FDA approved. And so that's real fact. So that means the science is going to have to step up uh, and the testing itself will have to step up to the hesitancy that is actually very real and the legacy of Tuskegee, but we're in 2021 where we're saying, well, what does it mean not to be FDA approved? So you're hearing both of those things in our communities. And so the strategy has to answer that with real facts, real science and real truth, because the community will ask you to be transparent and they're just not going to take your word for it. Makes a lot of sense. This week in Congress, Senate Republicans blocked passage of the For the People Act voting rights legislation. Meanwhile, here in North Carolina, the RNC is claiming a win in the fight for election integrity as the North Carolina Board of Elections decided to amend election regulations regarding poll observers. So leading up to the vote, it certainly was suspected that this would not pass. And Steve, especially with the filibuster in place, was it wise to pursue a vote on this right now or, or was going for this really inevitable? Well, I mean, I think it's always, you know, I, I think it's always better to, to tread with caution. I'd like to see these state initiatives actually, you know, in line with federal initiatives uh, at, at election reform. Because I think that the fact of the matter, Deb, is that, you know, we, if you, if you look at the Four Peoples Act, 
it's addressing a lot of the issues that are taking place that we're concerned about, expanding voter rights, voter protections, uh, gerrymandering, addressing the money in the system. But it's not addressing one problem, and that is states passing laws uh, to curb voting rights and doing these kinds of things. So I think rather than states passing law, I think it may be, it may be timely that they passed it, and we want integrity in our voting uh, in North Carolina, but I think it's also important that we keep those consistent with what's going on at the federal level. And, and so I don't believe that the Four Peoples Act is actually addressing that issue because states are continuing to, you know, for example, throwing out election results, you know, things like that, where President Trump sort of encouraged that culture. And, uh, you know, and, and, but it does end gerrymandering and provide these things. And so I think it's going to be very interesting moving forward on what federal form can be passed, uh, well, you know. So for me, one of the th things that kind of jumps out in what you said is this issue of states' rights. So Lamicia, you know, when, when it comes to, you know, aligning, say, federal and state interests, how, how possible is that? So historically, we saw with the Voting Rights Act, right, which was created to protect black communities from gerrymandering, um, to create black only districts. The Voting Rights Act was gutted, but the VRA was a federal legislation that helped to make sure that states were being fair. So when that Voting Rights Act, the VRA was gutted in 2013, that removed the requirements on states to prove that they wasn't going to discriminate. They said that racism was gone. And then shortly after, uh, North Carolina was under the worst, most racist gerrymandered districts in history, including partisan that went all the way to the Supreme Court. So when we talk about alignment, we're also talking about the district populations and even the elections that in North Carolina that are set to move to next year uh, because of a Senate Bill 722. We have to think about the impact on districted populations, municipalities locally, and how gerrymandering will re rear its ugly head because there's no federal oversight to require states to be fair and not racist. So that alignment has to be there, right? And so when we talk about, and Steve mentioned this, there are more than 400 anti-voter bills that have been introduced in 45 states since January. It is an orchestrated effort that is happening across states. So there has to be federal alignment to ensure that our voting rights aren't impeded because of the great success that folks fear after the Georgia elections. Well, Brett, as late L.A. mentioned, there have been more than 400 new pieces of legislation to protect the vote uh, introduced uh, in recent months. So what is really winning here, voter protection or election protection? Is strategy protection. Uh, the, there's a group of people who want to have it their way. Um, you notice it wasn't this big move to change laws when they won, but now that they lost, they want to change the rules. It's like they want to move the goalposts. It's like, oh, we lost that one. So, but in their mind, they didn't lose. They just didn't have the right strategy. So, because other people caught on to, okay, well, if this, here are the rules for us right now, let's go ahead and register our people, get our people to, to vote this way so that we can win. And when they won, the other team said, oh, whoa, 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 flag on the play. Let's go ahead and change the rules so that those other people, the other side, can't win. And that's what's going on. It's like this is a strategy. And you've heard me say this before, uh, Deborah, on this show, that uh, politics is a, a blood sport. It's a contact, full contact sport. And people are playing to win. Uh, one side, and it's both sides. It's not just one side. Both sides are playing to win. And us, uh, we, the people, are the ones that get, that get crushed in between it. So... Um, 
I think that this, and, and first of all, going back to what LA was talking about was Article One, Section Four of the Constitution actually allows the federal government to do what they were trying to do. Uh, and there was a there was a competition of of uh, opinions and viewpoints between uh, this Harvard professor I can't remember his right, name right now and a couple of the, the experts from uh, one of the experts that was with George Bush um, that was they, they kind of had this 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 uh, uh, idea ideological debate and legal debate but the guy from Harvard was like no Article One um, Section Four of the Constitution allows the federal government to to dictate to the states actually even under state states rights and control them I mean this is something that you know, it's a legal argument, and I'm not a lawyer. Don't play one on TV. Uh, so I think that it's, it's one of those things that's going to be carried out, and it's going to go back and forth. It's going to go back and it forth. It always does. It, it always the does. Is that this is a, a power grab by the Democrats, and the other narrative is the Republicans want to, uh, like, do it their way in the states, and they want to claim the states' rights. States' rights, that sounds very familiar uh, from way back, huh? Yeah, yeah, it does. it does sound pretty familiar. I want to bring one more element into this and get your thoughts on this, uh, Steve, and that's Joe Manchin. Um, what do you think, everything that has tr transpired in the last couple of weeks, what does that do for his black voter support, you think? Well, you know, uh, he's from my home state of West Virginia, Go Mountaineers, and I think it's, uh, it's going to hurt his support with black supporters. I mean, you've got to realize in West Virginia, uh, Joe Manchin uh, is in a very conservative state, a red state. And uh, he's going to win with Democrats and Republican support. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, though, Manchin is in a very interesting position. I will say this. I agree with Senator Manchin on that the fact that the most important uh, right that we have as Americans is our right to vote and that we have to make sure that the institutions of our democracy are strong. And that is going to require bipartisan support. I think knowing him as a friend, I think his intent is that that he wants to have bipartisan support. The challenge is, how is he going to do that? You know, I mean, the filibuster, in my opinion, should be used only for continued debate, engaged debate. It's not being used like that. Filibuster requires 60 votes in the Senate to stop the debate. But the debate continues to just stall legislation. So I would challenge the senator to say, OK, Senator, if you want to combine the John, Voights, uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Act with the Four People Act, Let's do it together. Let's maybe change the rules so we would lower the number of senators that would be required to end the debate, or we could provide an exemption for something like democracy. If Senator Manchin believes this is so important, then he may want to go to his colleagues and say, on this one, let's work together. Let's get our efforts going. But to answer your question, I do think that he will lose black support. He will lose democratic support. But at the end of the day, if he can pull this off and show the American people and the world that our country can come together, because if we don't, like Brett Chambers says, I'm in politics as well. It is a gladiator sport. And we could sit here and say, well, I won, you won, I lost, you won, but the American people lose. So Got that's it. what Senator Manchin needs to do. Well, thank you for that message to Senator Manchin. After weeks of headlines, journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones has decided she is not accepting a position at UNC Chapel Hill without tenure. Unless something changes in the next week or so, she will not start on July 1st. What does this mean for all the issues raised and the fallout that has occurred since her appointment as night chair? Uh, and that announcement took place in April. 
I'm going to open up with you, Brett, because you are a, a prof you are a professor. You're fam very familiar with the university setting, and I'm specifically um, interested in what's going to happen with SGA President Lamar Richards. What are your thoughts? Well, before we even talk about Lamar, I, I think the core of this is about Nicole and the process. There's, there's, there's a couple of things. There's a process and there's a narrative mm -hmm. and there's a culture because Nicole is a target right now. Her six, and, and I have to, in, as a disclaimer, I actually know Nicole and I've been part of her Ida B. Wells Society uh, training and that IRE training. And I just want to understand, like I'm trying to still wrap my head around why there was a, such a big brouhaha and a challenge to Nicole Hannah-Jones. But it's not about her. It's about some folks that want to control the narrative again. And they want to control the culture of the university. And they're pushing back and they're using it, doing it because they can. Um, Hussman is, a, is a, donor, a major donor to the Department of Journalism and to the university. Um, the university itself is always struggling. And it's not just UNC, it's universities across the country are, have always struggled with points of view, perspectives. The fight that they're having is over academic freedom. And the process was everyone on the, the, the leading up to the board of trustees at every level, the faculty said, we want this woman here. That's right. The board of trustees did not pick up the, the, tenure, the, the tenure piece, but they also say that it was never presented to them. So there's a lot of strategies going on here that are conflicting. And I don't think that we still know the whole story to it. No, in, in what I'm reading, I'm, I'm getting revelations every time I read a new article, but LA, you know, Brett mentioned process, uh, narrative and culture. Talk a little bit about the culture um, of the university of setting and the fact that so many faculty members have left um, sort of as a result of the Nicole Hannah-Jones story, but many faculty members had left prior to this and they're just fed up. Sure. So if we're going to take a step back and look at UNC Chapel Hill specifically, uh, we saw at least in the last few years, really since the 70s, there were protests against a Confederate statue called Silent Sam. And so that speaks to kind of the cultural uh, environment on the campus. Uh, and so not only were there protests since the 70s, this Confederate statue remained, right? Let's also talk about historically North Carolina, the South, um, Confederacy, when we talk about inaccurate historical narratives and the lie and the pervasive myth that the 1619 Project isn't accurate, well, Confederacy and Confederate statues aren't accurate. A private interest group uh, called the United Daughters of Confederacy made sure to invest in statues and children's books for the KKK at the top of the 1900s in order to create this pervasive myth and lie that the Confederate soldiers were war heroes. So we have an institution that has enshrined a public interest group statue on their campus, devoted hundreds of thousands of dollars to security and then made a $2.5 million deal with a neo-Confederate group to move the statue. So when you're talking about the culture, a lot of what you're seeing has been brooding under the surface. And so our support, and I'll say it very bluntly, we support uh, uh, the SGA President Lamar Richards. Uh, and to quote his statement really briefly, he said, you cannot reform a system rooted in oppression, racism, and hatred. And tragically, the term reform at this university continues to be used as a subtle tactic to oppress students, faculty, staff, past, present, and future alike. And so Nicole is really, whether, I know it wasn't without her consent, but she's the reckoning that many people have been dreaming of for this university for years. 
and talking about the fallout, Steve, you know, certainly LA brings up a lot of really great points. Um, particularly, let's talk about the narrative that comes out of this and um, moving back to uh, Lamar's statements, uh, the SGA president, who's also a member of, of the BOG, and he has really come out strong uh, against the university itself in his statements. And now that, and now that, and unless and until Nicole comes on board, what's that going to mean for the university and his position representing the university? Well, um, Deborah, you know, as a, as a former, as a proud parent of a, of a Tar Heel in the UNC School of Journalism, this really hits home for me, just looking at the reputation of the university to those around the nation and the world uh, of such a leading academic institution. And I agree with Lamar, the president, student body president, that, you know, this is really going to hurt the university. And I think that uh, it's hurting our reputation and image. And let me, let me explain why. You know, I think, I think what's really going on here, I think, is, is, is also the, the role of a journalist and the hypocrisy that Mr. Hussman is saying and that, well, journalists have to be non-biased, they have to have integrity, uh, they have to report the news. Well, you know, let's be fair here. Uh, you, you know, Professor Jones was was not being biased or laying out a political view. She was simply reporting uh, facts, reporting based on her experiences and her observations. Uh, that's no different than what Mr. Hussman probably watches when he watches Fox News or conservative talk shows. So I think uh, it sends a bad message to our children as well. You know, good journalism is where you do bring in your experiences. And the fact of the matter is, if you look at 1619, uh, this was a, a documentary that that talked, you know, that was in the New York Times that talked about the fact that slaves did exist. And like L.A. said, you know, we put Confederate statues, mm -hmm. we've honored heroes, uh, these kinds of things. We can't have a revisionist history. So at the end of the day, I think that's really what's going on here. And I think it's time for the university, particularly University of North Carolina, to not have the university be a stomping ground for politics. And let's not forget her strong credentials in addition to her experience in, in and so forth. A Pulitzer yes. Prize winner, a uh, MacArthur uh, genius, and more. So many uh, people are asking, you know, right. what more does someone have to do to qualify? And it, it, it's not about her qualifications. It's no, much bigger, Brett, as you said. Yeah. And I thank you, uh, Steve Rao, Lamisha Whittington, and Brett Chambers for your comments today. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Have a great weekend. Once again, I want to thank today's guests. We invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. through the financial contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.